0: I have a couple history books with me here, so I'm a happy man. And they have some stories from what I would call the early Yeshua movement. There is a variety of terms that people use for that historical span of time between when Yeshua uh, lifted off of planet earth until Constantine significantly changed um, the faith that Yeshua left his his disciples. He really uh, kind of overhauled the expression of it turned it into a bit of a state religion you know the story anyway there are a lot of, there are a lot of terms for that early era uh, some people would call that in, in, in academic circles they would call that the anti Nicene era Anta means before Nicene is like the Council of, of Nicaea right the Anto-Nicene era was the, the that time period before Constantine and the Nicene Council in the early 300s. Um, another popular term is the early church i 'm sure you 've heard that term right the early church um, there's, there's some. There's another term, it's a little bit older Some people would call it the primitive church When I think of primitive, I think more of like Barbaric conditions or living in hovels And cooking on campfires and things So that one's not as popular, but it's out there um, Historically, in, in church history Let's say in the early Reformation People who wanted to go back to being like the early church The primitive church were called primitivists Everybody say primitivists so I, I would say that I'm I'm a primitivist, right? I want to go to being back like that. Now, the term I most prefer, and a term that is getting more popular in the academic world, is the term the the Jesus movement or the Yeshua movement. And that's my favorite term for a number of reasons. Uh for one, when you talk about the church. The church today has some significant differences from the, from Yeshua's church in the first century. Uh, Constantine turned it into something of a state establishment. Uh, he introduced big buildings. He introduced uh, kind of a different form of play, paid clergy. There were some big changes, right? So sometimes when you talk about the church or the early church, people get some an idea in their minds that wasn't originally there. Um, I even remember, you know, growing up as a pastor's kid, when I would, um, when I would hear about early church history, I would, I would, I would picture my evangelical church experience back into the first century. So, for instance, once I heard an account about how Yeshua's beloved disciple, John, or Yohanan, um, he was just so saturated with the Father's love. Like, when he would walk into a room, people would just feel the Father's love, and sometimes they would begin weeping, and they didn't even know that he was that, they were, that he was there. It was just like he had this aura of Yeshua's love just radiating from him. And I remember hearing a story about how he would walk into a gathering and the people maybe wouldn't even know that he was there. Maybe he was hiding in the corner or something and they would start weeping. And as, as a young child, growing up as a pastor's kid, I always imagined, I'd close my eyes and there I, there I could see it in my mind in the early church, um, that, you know, the, the pulpit at the front and the rows of pews and the stained glass windows and there was John sitting in the back pew. Like, that was what I pictured, right? But that wasn't there in the first century. What you have in the first century is an underground movement, an illegal group of people that function somewhat like Al-Qaeda, underground cells, loosely associated, um, that work as peers together, And no, there isn't like, I don't know if I could draw many more correlations between the movement that Yeshua started and Al-Qaeda, but you get the picture with that, right? And so, um, that's why I really like talking about the early Yeshua movement. Because he started a movement, and it was radical in its time. It flipped the Roman Empire within three centuries. And millions of people laid down their lives for that cause and uh, yes they were underground yes they they gathered in homes or in uh, in the forest or um in 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 the catacombs in the underground labyrinth of graves that was available at times in their areas um these were places where they gathered so we are going to be uh looking today at some stories from people who were hardcore witnesses for Yeshua in the early movement that he started uh, you remember in our first talk We defined what a witness is The Greek word for a witness is Martyr Everybody say martyr That's where we get the idea of a martyr Someone who dies for the cause Someone who sacrifices themselves For whatever it is that they are working hard for It's a common word in English And we get it from the early believers in Yeshua Who were so hardcore and outspoken in their testimony That the government just couldn't take it The establishment couldn't handle it And they said we disagree with you, you are a threat, you need to die. And they would kill them. They would become martyrs as witnesses for Yeshua. And uh, in the second couple of our talks, you remember, we, uh, we, we, taught, we looked at a historical lineup of witnesses to Yeshua, starting with the Father himself, and uh, running through to Yeshua's inner circle of men, his emissaries that he appointed to represent him and uh, go to the nations ultimately and preach the gospel, the message that he gave. Um, in our last two talks, numbers three and f- numbers uh, three and four, we looked at the how. We looked at some practical tools that we have as individual disciples and as a community to. Um, Testify to Yeshua's cause in our circles of influence, in our culture, and we talked about how to do that in normal ways, ways that aren't freaky, weird, or like in your face religious. And uh, so we're just going to kind of continue that that line of thought, that historical lineup of witnesses in the early movement. And I think it's going to be really enjoyable. We're going to look at a couple that are recorded in the Holy Scriptures, and we're going to look at a couple that are not recorded in the Holy Scriptures, but were recorded by some of the historians of the early Yeshua movement. Uh, The first one I want to mention is actually the predecessor to the king. This was the man who came. He was a wild man. He was uh, was a bachelor, you could say, unmarried. He was the son of a very elite priest. And uh, he didn't follow the typical priestly ministry. I'll bet a lot of his family members looked at him as the black sheep. He ended up like doing this rugged, survivalist stuff out in the wilderness, the desert areas, areas south of Jerusalem. He was kind of famous. Like he would, he, he, his, his primary food source was, was locusts, like big grasshoppers. And I'm not sure how many of those things you need to eat a day to survive, but he ate a lot of those things. Pop off the heads, pop off the legs, down it goes. Right? This that, that was the man. And um, he also was famous for eating honey. That could have been bee honey or date honey. Because um, there are there, some stories from uh, early Jewish history about men who went into hiding, living in caves, and they survived off those dates and uh, date, honey. So whatever the case may be, this was the man. And he wasn't just doing that because he was a nutcase or because he just couldn't handle society. He was doing it because the Spirit of Yahweh was upon him. And the Spirit of Yahweh was preparing him as a prophet to herald the coming of the ultimate King of Israel. And sure enough, the guy hit his 30th birthday and shortly thereafter, it says the word of Elohim came to John, to Yohanan in the wilderness and he made his public debut. He showed up shouting passionately uh, next to the Jordan River and uh, he had no publicity campaign, he had no manager, he did not utilize tools like the internet, but people heard about this guy and they were like, there is a burning man in the wilderness. He's shouting and... He is so impassioned. He is really sent by the God of Israel. And they started flocking out to him. And he was in your face with these people. Like religious leaders, Roman soldiers, your regular common everyday everyday dudes. And he was like, you need to change. You need to change this, you need to change that. You need to turn to the, the true God. And uh, a lot of people responded really well to that. They got their lives in order. And as a sign of that, he would dunk them in the river. Right? Symbolizing them coming up to a new life. Uh, the, religious, the religious establishment in Jerusalem, for the most part, rejected him. And uh, as a result, they also couldn't accept his testimony about a certain itinerant rabbi slash um, carpenter, blue-collar worker, named Yeshua from a little, a little uh, backwards town up in the Galilee. So anyway, this man went on after he passed the baton to Yeshua, whom he said was the son of Elohim, the Lamb of God, and the king. He passed the baton on to Yeshua. He went on to get arrested in kind of a sordid case where there was this girl doing kind of some dirty dancing, and the king was really impressed. and He promised her basically anything she wanted, so she went to her mom and said, well, what should I ask this guy for? And, uh, and her mom had this vendetta against this righteous prophet, John, who was at that point in prison, and she said, "Ask him for the head of John." And so, sure enough, the king really regretted that, but he had him beheaded. Brought the head, and you know the whole story, right? He was—I would say—he was the first martyr of the early Yeshua movement. He literally died a martyr's death. And this is what it says about him in the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse seven: He came as a martyr. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. So that was his mission. That was what he was born for. He, he, he was born to be a martyr. He was sent to testify about the light, whose name is Yeshua. Um, looking, scrolling on a couple of years, Yeshua ascends from planet Earth with uh, an accompanying promise that he'll be coming back the same way, and it will be the same guy. It's described in the book of Zechariah, last chapter. And shortly thereafter, the, the Holy Spirit hit His community of disciples powerfully. They began speaking powerfully about the, uh, Yeshua. And um, things, things, things really uh, escalated. Before too long, there were over 3,000 disciples in Jerusalem. They needed some administrators to take care of some of the practical stuff, of making sure everybody was fed. So they selected seven guys. You can read about in the Acts of the Apostles, chapters 6 and 7. One of them, they, them was named Stephen. Uh, Stephen was a lot more than just an administrator or a guy who took care of practical stuff and waited on tables. He was also an outspoken proponent of Yeshua as the Messiah. He got in some real verbal tangles with some, um, some guys who hated Yeshua from five different synagogues in Jerusalem. And he ended up getting killed. They hired some false witnesses. They said that Stephen was anti-Torah, anti-Temple, and anti-Jewish people. Did you notice they were false witnesses? Stephen wasn't saying that stuff. A lot of people today believe that Stephen and all those early believers were saying that stuff. Not true. And he ended up standing before the Sanhedrin, giving a speech that they just freaked out at because it really hit them on the heart level. And uh, they had him killed. And this is what one of the guys who was there... Approving of the whole thing, giving it his thumbs up, said he was a young guy named Saul, very zealous for the cause. He was being apprenticed by uh, a rabbi named Gamaliel or Gamliel. They were actually they were also actually looking at him to someday possibly be the leader of the Sanhedrin, the government of the whole Jewish nation. And this is what he says, um, what Shaul or Paul says in Acts chapter twenty-two, verse twenty: "Yeshua, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was being shed." I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. So did you hear that? Stephen, I I, I think you could say was one of the next martyrs in the early Yeshua movement. A very heroic man. Uh, One of the early historians in the Yeshua movement also mentioned that three others of those seven deacons or like administrator type guys including Stephen were killed. I think it was like um, a guy named Parmenas, a guy named Nicanor, And a guy named Shimon. So uh, that that historian also said, during that persecution, it was kind of like the first wave persecution that hit the early Jerusalem community, in conjunction with Stephen's trial, there were about 2,000 disciples of Yeshua that were were martyred at that time for his cause. It was a bloodbath. And uh, a guy that later became known as Paul was spearheading the whole thing. Uh, Scrolling on several more decades... In the book of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, a series of visions that was given to the last of the apostles of his, like, his, his original twelve apostles left on the island of Patmos, which was like the ancient equivalent of Alcatraz. Yeshua gives a letter through John to an early Yeshua community in Asia Minor. And this is what he says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my martyr, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there was a city in Asia Minor, and it was famous for being the place where Satan dwells, the place where Satan's throne is. And he said, I, I, and Yeshua says, I know where you are. I'm aware of your position. And good job you held on to my name. Good job you didn't deny the faith that I've given you, even when Antipas, my martyr, was killed. So Antipas was another man in the early Yeshua movement who was martyred for the cause. Um, How many of you have heard of or read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Okay, a couple of you. Um, This is an excellent work. If you are into history, if you are into the question, what happened after the book of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah was completed? You know, basically from the destruction of the Second Temple and on. What happened for those couple centuries until Constantine? Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is an excellent read. He basically, he profiles, um, I would probably say like a hundred or a couple hundred believers in Yeshua during those first couple centuries that died for their testimony. And uh, he goes on to also outline some of the early reformers' lives and uh, some some of them and how they died also. Um, he, he outlines basically, um, he bases a lot of his history on Eusebius, who was an early Christian historian from the 300s. Eusebius collected a lot of these these legendary stories about heroes in the early movement and, and how they died bloody, gruesome martyrs' deaths. And uh, he records a lot of them. It's excellent reading. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, basically, um, and he talks about how the, uh, the original apostles died also. They were... Uh, they all died martyrs' deaths, with the exception of, of John. They tried to kill John. They, they boiled him in oil, but he just wouldn't die. Really t- really tough guy, I guess. That must have been kind of scary for the guys trying to boil him. Um, anyway, uh, this man, um, John, F- I believe his name was John Fox. Here, I'll, I'll give this to you. Yeah, John Fox, he was born in 1516. And uh, he started as a zealous Catholic. Uh, he came in contact with early uh, Reformation theology and he started reading his Bible and he said, I can't be a Catholic anymore. And so he became a very, a very outspoken proponent for, for change in the body of Messiah. Um, he got chased out of England when uh, I think his bloody Queen Mary ascended the throne in the 1500s. Was, she was a staunch Catholic and she said, okay, all these Protestants have to die. And so um, he and a lot of other, uh, John, John Fox and a lot of other early Reformers fled fled and went to Europe. And uh, he began assembling stories about people that died for the faith. It's pretty, It's very interesting reading. Um, he, uh, he outlines the... Uh, there, there were basically ten major persecutions that hit the early Yeshua movement between, um, between when Yeshua ascended and when Constantine overhauled a lot of things. Um, the first one was under Nero, which took place right before the destruction of the Second Temple. The second was under Domitian, who, uh, which was around AD 81. The third was under Trajan, who, uh, and that took place around 108 AD. And the fourth one is the one I'm going to tell you a couple of stories from. The fourth wave of persecution took place under Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, um, AD 162. I'm trying to remember, he's, um, he's pretty, he's well known probably through, uh, what movie is it? You've heard that name in a movie probably. I think isn't he, is a Gladiator Marcus Aurelius is in Gladiator. Okay, yeah. So you mentioned that, and everybody was like, oh, okay, I'm with you, right? So anyway, that's the guy, um, Marcus Aurelius. Um, he he was a great emperor in some regards, but he also hated Yeshua and he hated Yeshua's people, and uh, he he, insti- he instigated probably the most uh, ferocious uh, attack against the early Yeshua movement around 162. Um, during that time, I'll just I'll just read to you a little bit from uh, from. Um, Fox's account here and then I'll read you a story of one of these men. He says, Marcus Aurelius followed about the year of our Lord 161, a man of nature more stern and severe, and although in study of philosophy and in civil government no less commendable, yet toward the Christian sharp and fierce, by whom is moved the fourth persecution. The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc. upon their points. Others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths." Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Polycarp, the venerable Bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped but was discovered by a child. He goes on to give an account of Polycarp, and that's the story that I want to read to you today. You may remember me talking about Polycarp when we were talking about Passover. I was giving a defense of the the celebration of Passover and uh, giving you a lot of scriptures and historical documents saying that the early church celebrated Passover and unleavened bread until the mid-100s when a Roman bishop named Anicetus introduced Easter and started ramrodding the thing through and threatening to excommunicate anybody who didn't go along with his new innovations. Um, You may remember Polycarp was a disciple of John, the beloved Apostle himself. And Polycarp traveled from Asia Minor, long distance trip to the West, to Rome to talk with Bishop Anicetus to try and convince him to renege a little bit, settle down. And um, this is the man whose story I'm going to be reading to you today, uh, the story of, of Polycarp. So um, I have a 10-book set. It's called The Antonicene Fathers. This is book number one. It's basically all of the the writings of the early Christian historians and sages from the first three centuries of Yeshua's movement. And very early on in this book, we have a document from the early Yeshua movement. It's called The Encyclical Epistle of the Church at Smyrna concerning the martyrdom of the Holy Polycarp. So basically, this is the story of how Polycarp... um, Died a a martyr's death. (coughs) Excuse me. So this is the story I'm going to read to you today. It's a couple of pages, so just settle in. If you want, close your eyes and imagine it. And uh, and uh, let's just read about one of the heroes of the movement. The uh, the congregation of God, which sojourns at Smyrna, to the congregation of God sojourning in Philomelium, and to all the congregations of the holy and universal Church in every place. Mercy, peace, and love from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. We have written to you, brethren, as to what relates to the martyrs, and especially to the blessed Polycarp, who put an end to the persecution, having, as it were, set a seal upon it by his martyrdom. For almost all the events that happened previously to this one took place that the Master might show us from above a martyrdom becoming the gospel." For he waited to be delivered up, even as the Master had done, that we also might become his followers, while we look not merely at what concerns ourselves, but have regard also to our neighbors. For it is the part of a true and well-founded love, not only to wish oneself to be saved, but also all the brethren. Chapter 2 All the martyrdoms then were blessed. And noble, which took place according to the will of God. For it becomes us who profess greater piety than others to ascribe the authority over all things to God. And truly, who can fail to admire their nobleness of mind and their patience with that love towards their master which they displayed? Who, when they were so torn with scourges that the frame of their bodies, even to the very inward veins and arteries, was laid open, still patiently endured. While even those that stood by pitied and bewailed them. But they reached such a pitch of magnanimity that not one of them let a sigh or a groan escape them. Thus proving to all that those holy martyrs of of Messiah at the very time when they suffered such torments were absent from the body. Or rather that the master then stood by them and communed with them. It's amazing, hey? It's like... People would watch these people who were being whipped until their their, their, their skeletons were showing and, and, and their, their, their veins and sinews were showing. And people were screaming. People who didn't even believe in Yeshua. And yet these guys were solid. They were tough. It's like they weren't even feeling it. And looking at the grace of Messiah, they, disposed, they despised all the torments of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. For this reason, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them. For they kept before their view escape from that fire which is eternal and never shall be quenched, and looked forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure, things quote, which eye hath not heard, n- which ear hath not heard, nor eye seen, neither have entered into the heart of man, but were revealed by the master to them, inasmuch as they were no longer men but had already become angels. And, in like manner, those who were condemned to the wild beasts endured dreadful tortures, being stretched out upon beds full of spikes, and subjected to various other kinds of torments, in order that, if it were possible, the tyrant might, by their lingering tortures, lead them to a denial of Messiah. For the devil did invent, indeed invent many things against them, but thanks be to God, he could not prevail over all. For the most noble Germanicus strengthened the timidity of others by his own patience. Remember, um, remember he was mentioned in Fox's account also, Germanicus. And fought heroically with the wild beasts. For when the proconsul sought to persuade him and urged him to take pity upon his age, he attracted the wild beast toward himself and provoked it, being desirous to escape all the more quickly from an unrighteous and impious world. But upon this, the whole multitude marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of Christians cried out, away with the atheists! Let polycarp be sought out. Um, Just a little historical note. The the Greco-Roman world called Christians atheists because they only believed in one God instead of believing in their big plethora of gods, right? So it's a little bit misleading there. Now, one named Quintus, a Phrygian, who was but lately come from Phrygia, when he saw the wild beasts, became afraid. This was the man who forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily for trial. Him, the proconsul, after many entreaties, persuaded to swear and to offer sacrifice. Wherefore, brethren, we do not commend those who give themselves up, seeing the gospel does not teach so to do. So this guy copped out. But the most admirable Polycarp, When he first heard that he was sought for, was in no measure disturbed, but resolved to continue in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many, he was persuaded to leave it. He departed therefore to a country house, not far distant from the city. There he stayed with a few friends, engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men, and for the congregations throughout the world, according to his usual custom. And while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him three days before he was taken. And behold, the pillow under his head seemed to him on fire. Upon this, turning to those who were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burnt alive. And when those who sought for him were at hand, he departed to another dwelling, whither his pursuers immediately came after him. And when they found him not, they seized upon two youths that were there, one of whom, being subjected to torture, confessed. It was thus impossible that he should continue hid, since those that betrayed him were of his own household. The Ironarch there, whose office is the same as that of Claronimus, by name Herod, hastened to bring him into the stadium. This all happened that he might fulfil his special lot, being made a partaker of Messiah, and that they who betrayed him might undergo the punishment of Judas himself. His pursuers then, along with horsemen, and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation. Uh, do you know what the day of the preparation is? This is interesting. This happened during Passover. You're going to hear them talking about a couple terms. One of them is the day of the preparation. What day is that? It it can be one of two things. It can be the day before Passover, when you prepare for Passover. Or it can be Friday, which is the day when you prepare for the Holy Sabbath, from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Um, My note in this book says that is on Friday. So did you hear that? The early Christians in the mid-100s called Friday the day of preparation for the Sabbath. Do you think there's any chance, based just on that one reference, that the early Christians celebrated the biblical Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening? Yeah! Or they would have no clue what what this guy was talking about. So right there, that's a very powerful piece of evidence that the early Yeshua movement on into the mid-100s celebrated the Sabbath. And they looked at Friday as the day to get ready for Shabbat, just like we do today. All right. Anyway, um, they went. Uh, his pursuers then along with horsemen, and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation with their usual weapons, as if going out against a robber. And being come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house, from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they were come, he went down and spake with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours, to the astonishment of them that heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man." You can imagine the cops coming to the door and him saying, Yeah, come on in. I, I was waiting for you. And Just sit down. You'll you have supper and I'm just going to pray for an hour if that's okay with you. Wow. And they're like, they sent this many guys against an old man? Just imagine them busting in with like all of the you know, night vision goggles and uh, I don't know, machine guns or something. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, having made mention of all that had at any time come in contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole universal congregation throughout the world, the time of his departure having arrived, they set him upon an ass and conducted him into the city, the day being that of the Great Sabbath. Do you know what the Great Sabbath is? These early Christians knew what the Great Sabbath was. It's actually something that today usually only Jewish people or Messianic Jews know. In Hebrew, it's called Shabbat Hagadol. It's, uh, it's the Sabbath before Passover. Right? It's interesting. These early Christians knew what this stuff was. sounds like they were doing it. And the ironarch Herod, accompanied by his father Nicetes, both riding in a chariot, met him, and taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him, and endeavored to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord? That was the whole thing, right? They would say, Say, Caesar is Lord! And the the early believers in Yeshua would say, No, Yeshua is Lord. And that was the kicker. And and so they were trying to convince him to say this. What harm is there in saying that? And in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions. And so make sure of safety. But he at first gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him, and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that, in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, and as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste, and was conducted to the stadium, where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him. But those of our brothers who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Messiah, saying, Have respect to thy old age. And other similar things, according to their custom, such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, hey, the judge was trying to get him to repent. <laughs> but Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists a little the little note here says Referring the words of the heathens And not to the Christians As was desired So yeah, Everybody catch that They said You say away with the atheists That is the Christians And he Flung his hand over all of the Quote heathens there And said Away with those atheists That's gutsy But poly Okay where is it I don't know where Then the proconsul urging him And saying Swear And I will set thee at liberty Reproach Messiah Polycarp declared Eighty and six years, that's eighty-six years, have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that, and thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian." And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you shall hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, To you I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith, for we are taught to give all due honor to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you, except you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of that which is good, in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring forth what you want. While he spoke these and many other like things, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and Jews who lived at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. What a great thing to be famous for, hey? This is the overthrower of our gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burned alive. For thus it behooved the vision which was revealed to him in regard to his pillow to be fulfilled, when, seeing it on fire as he was praying, he turned about and said prophetically to the faithful that were with him, "'I must be burnt alive.'" This then was carried into effect with greater speed than it was spoken. The multitudes immediately gathered around, gathering together wood and faggots, which is like chunks of wood, out of the shops and baths, the Jews especially, according to their habit, eagerly assisting them in it. And when the funeral pile was was ready, Polycarp, laying aside all his garments and loosing his girdle, sought also to take off his sandals. A thing he was not accustomed to do, inasmuch as every one of the faithful was always eager, who should first touch his skin. For on account of his holy life he was, even before his martyrdom, adorned with every kind of good. Immediately then they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pile. But when they were about also to fix him with nails, he said, Leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without your securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the pile." They did not nail him then, but simply bound him. And he, placing his hands behind him, and being bound like a distinguished ram, taken out of a great flock for sacrifice, and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God, looked up to heaven and said, O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus the Messiah, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and of every creature, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs in the cup of your Messiah to the resurrection of eternal life both of soul and body through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice According as you, the ever-truthful God, has foreordained, has revealed beforehand to me, and now has fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise you for all things, I bless you, I glorify you, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all the coming ages. Amen. When he had pronounced this, Amen, and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it, beheld a great miracle, and have been preserved that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perished. We, we perceived such a sweet fragrance coming from the pile as if frankincense or some other sweet, sweet precious spice had been smoking there. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and per- pierce him through with the dagger. And on his doing this, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the chosen, of whom this most admirable polycarp was one, having in our own times been being an, being an apostolic and prophetic teacher, and bishop of the universal congregation which is in Smyrna. For every word that went out of his mouth either has been or shall yet be accomplished. But when the adversary of the race of the righteous, the envious, malicious, and wicked one perceived the impressive nature of his martyrdom and considered the blameless life he had led from the beginning and how he was now crowned with the wreath of immortality, having beyond dispute received his reward, he did his utmost that not the least memorial of him should be taken away by us, although many desired to do this and to become possessors of his holy flesh." For this end, he suggested to Nicetes, the father of Herod and brother of Alsay, to go and entreat the governor not to give up his body to be buried, lest, said he, forsaking him that was crucified, they begin to worship this one. This he said at the suggestion and urgent persuasion of the Jews, who also watched us as we sought to take him out of the fire, being ignorant of this, that it is neither possible for us ever to forsake Messiah, who suffered for the salvation of such, as shall be saved throughout the whole world, the blameless one for sinners, nor to worship any other. For him indeed, as being the Son of God, we adore. But the martyrs, as disciples and followers of the Master, we worthily love on account of their extraordinary affection towards their own King and Master, of whom may we also be made companions and fellow disciples. The centurion then, seeing the strife excited by the Jews, placed the body in the midst of the fire and consumed it. Accordingly, we afterward took up his bones, as being more precious than the most exquisite jewels and more purified than gold, and deposited them in a fitting place, whither being gathered together as opportunity has allowed us, with joy and rejoicing, the master shall grant us to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom, both in memory of those who have already finished their course, and for the exercising and preparation of those yet to walk in their steps. Which, by the way, is a very Jewish thing. In the Jewish world, if a a loved one dies, you remember the anniversary of their death and you say uh, the Kaddish, for instance, a certain prayer on that day. This, then, is the account of the blessed Polycarp, who, being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, reckoning those also of Philadelphia, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr whose martyrdom all desire to imitate as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Messiah. For having through patience overcome the unjust governor and thus acquired the crown of immortality, he now with the apostles and all the righteous rejoices rejoicingly glorifies God, even the Father, and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, the Savior of our souls, the governor of our bodies, and the shepherd of the universal congregation throughout the world. Since then you requested that we would at large make you acquainted with what really took place, we have for the present sent you this summary account through our brother Marcus. When therefore you have yourselves read this epistle, be pleased to send it to the brothers at a greater distance, that they also may glorify the Master who makes such choice of his own servants to Him who is able to bring us all by His grace and goodness, into His everlasting kingdom, through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, to Him be glory and honor and power and majesty forever. Amen. Salute all the saints. Those that are with us salute you and Everestus, who wrote this epistle with all his house. Then there's a little note here at the end. Now, the blessed Polycarp suffered martyrdom on the second day of the month of just begun, the seventh day before the calends of May, on the great Sabbath. He died on Shabbat Hagadol, the great Sabbath, at the eighth hour. He was taken by Herod, Philip the Tralian, being high priest, Statius Quadratus, being proconsul, but Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, being king forever. To whom be glory, honor, majesty, and an everlasting throne, from generation to generation. Amen. And then there's another second little note here from the guy who wrote the letter. We wish you brothers all happiness while you walk according to the doctrine of the gospel of Yeshua the Messiah with whom be glory to God the Father and the Holy Spirit for the salvation of His holy elect after whose example the blessed Polycarp suffered following in whose steps may we too be found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. These things Caius transcribed from the copy of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, having himself been intimate with Irenaeus. And I, Socrates, transcribed them at Corinth from the copy of Gaius. Grace be with you all. And I, again, Peonius, wrote them from the previously written copy, having carefully searched into them, and the blessed Polycarp, having manifested them... As I saw was shown what follows i 've collected these things when they had almost faded away through the lapse of time that the Lord Jesus Christ may also gather me along with his elect into his heavenly kingdom, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You could hear the notes of a couple of scribes who said, "I copied this down and then I copied this down, and this was the lineage by which this history was transmitted so Polycarp was one of the heroes of the early Yeshua movement. He died about 120 years, I would say roughly, after Yeshua died. And uh, he, was, he was a witness in the sense of being a martyr. And uh, we have a very rich heritage. We have, we have such a great inheritance as disciples of Yeshua. And I, I, think it's, I think it's sad that most disciples of Yeshua don't get to hear these stories. And uh, so it's, it's an honor reading this story today. I, um, you know, I think I could read you one more short story. It's a shorter one, of another man that perished as a witness of Yeshua during that same persecution. You remember John Fox pointed out that this was the, uh, this was the fourth persecution, the major persecution under Marcus Aurelius. And uh, he also mentions a man named, quote, Justin the Celebrated Philosopher. Uh, I've quoted Justin, they call him Justin Martyr, guess why they call him Justin Martyr? Because he was martyred that 's right um, this, this was another man that was a contemporary of Polycarp um, did, a, did a very a fantastic job defending the gospel um, both to Greek philosophers and uh, to other um, sectors of greco roman society and uh, his, his, his story is much shorter i think i 'd like to read it to you also just because it 's another snapshot into that persecution in the lives of some of the early uh, the early uh, martyrs of, of Yeshua mm-hmm. this one is called um the martyrdom of the holy martyrs, Justin, Cheridan, Charides, Paon, and Liberanius, who suffered at Rome. In the time of the lawless partisans of idolatry, wicked decrees were passed against the godly Christians in town and country, to force them to offer libations to vain idols. And accordingly, the holy men, having been apprehended, were brought before the prefect of Rome, Rusticus by name. And when they had brought before his judgment seat, Rusticus the prefect said to Justin, Obey the gods at once, and submit to the kings." Justin said, "To obey the commandments of our Savior, and of course it says Jesus Christ here. I'm just going to say Yeshua the Messiah because, because, that's you know those are the terms that we use, right? To obey the commandments of our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah is worthy neither of blame nor of condemnation." Rusticus the prefect said, "What kind of doctrines do you profess?" Justin said, "I have endeavored to learn all doctrines, but I have acquiesced at last in the true doctrines, namely those of the Christians." Uh, by the way, in Greek, they were called Christians. In the other major language that was used in the ancient world, Aramaic, guess what they were called? Messianics. So, like, if you're reading the Greek New Testament, they'll be called Christians. If you're reading the Aramaic New Testament, which some people su- suggest was even earlier than written than the Greek New Testament, they're actually called Messianics. So, when you hear Christians here, think Messianics just as well. Alright? <clears throat> anyway, he says... um, I have acquiesced at last in the true doctrines, those namely of the Christians or messianics, even though they do not please those who hold false opinions. Rusticus the Prefect said, Are those the doctrines that please you, you utterly wretched man? Justin said, Yes, since I adhere to them with right dogma. Rusticus the Prefect said, What is the dogma? Justin said, That according to which we worship the God of the Christians whom we reckon to be one from the beginning, the maker and fashioner of the whole creation, visible and invisible, and the master, Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, who had also been preached beforehand by the prophets as about to be present with the race of men, the herald of salvation, and teacher of good disciples. And I, being a man, think that what I can say is insignificant in comparison with his boundless divinity, acknowledging a certain prophetic power, since it was prophesied concerning him of whom now I say that he is the Son of God. For I know that of old the prophets foretold his appearance among men. You remember when we were talking about one of the tools that we have to testify of Yeshua is fulfilled prophecy? Like crazy fulfilled prophecy. Like you look at it and you're like, that is not humanly possible. And you remember I mentioned this man Justin was one of those philosophers who became a believer in Yeshua when he was confronted with the fact that Yeshua fulfilled so many prophecies. And so here he is in this account talking about fulfilled prophecy to this uh, to this judge. Rusticus the Prefect said, Where do you assemble? Justin said, Where each one chooses and can. For do you fancy that we all meet in the very same place? Did you notice that? That's a very interesting insight into how the early believers gathered. Where each one chooses and can. For do you fancy we could all meet in the very same place? Not so. Because the God of the Christians is not circumscribed by place. But being invisible, fills heaven and earth and everywhere is worshipped and glorified by the faithful. Rusticus the Prefect said, Tell me where you assemble, or into what place do you collect your followers? It's kind of funny, hey? Ask the same question again. He just, he, maybe he just couldn't get it. Like, what? Justin said, I live above one Martinus at the Timothean Bath, and during the whole time, and I am now living in Rome for the second time, I am unaware of any other meeting than this. It's interesting, hey? Justin was in Rome... And he said, Well, I've been gathering at this house, and I don't know about any other gatherings. Hmm. And if anyone wished wish to come to me, I communicated to him the doctrines of truth. Rusticus said, Are you not then a Christian? Justin said, Yes, I am a Christian. And you could just as well read that as, Rusticus said, Are you then Messianic? Justin said, Yes, I am Messianic. Then said the prefect Rusticus to Cheriton, Tell me further, Cheriton, Are you also a Christian? Cheriton said, I am a Christian by the command of God. Rusticus the prefect asked the woman, Cherito, What say you, Cherito? Cherito said, I am a Christian by the grace of God. Rusticus said to Euopistus, And what are you? Euopistus, a servant of Caesar, answered, I too am a Christian, having been freed by Messiah. And by the grace of Messiah, I partake of the same hope. Rusticus the prefect said to Hyrax, And you, are you a Christian? Hyrax said, Yes, I am a Christian, for I revere and worship the same God. Rusticus the Prefect said, Did Justin make you Christians? Hyrax said, I was a Christian and will be a Christian. And Paeon stood up and said, I too am a Christian. Rusticus the Prefect said, Who taught you? Paeon said, From our parents we received this good confession. Eoapistus said, I willingly heard the words of Justin... But from my parents also, I learned to be a Christian. Rusticus the prefect said, Where are your parents? Ioppistus said, In Cappadocia. Rusticus said to Hyrax, Where are your parents? And he answered and said, Messiah is our true father, and faith in him is our mother. And my earthly parents died, and I, when I was driven from Myconium in Phrygia, came here. Rusticus the prefect said to Liberanius, And what say you? Are you a Christian and unwilling to worship the gods? Liberanius said, I too am a Christian, for I worship and reverence the only true God. The prefect says to Justin, Hearken, you who are called learned, and think that you know true doctrines, if you are scourged and beheaded. Do you believe you will ascend into heaven? Justin said, I hope that, if I endure these things, I shall have his gifts. For I know that, to all who have thus lived, there abides the divine favor until the completion of the whole world. Rusticus the prefect said, Do you suppose then that you will ascend into heaven to receive some recompense? Justin said, I do not suppose it, but I know, and am fully persuaded of it. Rusticus the prefect said, Let us then now come to the matter in hand, and which presses. Having come together, offer sacrifice with one accord to the gods. Justin said, No right thinking person falls away from piety to impiety. (laughs) No sane person. Rusticus the Prefect said, Unless you obey, you shall be mercilessly punished. Justin said, Through prayer, we can be saved on account of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, even when we have been punished, because this shall become to us salvation, and confidence at the most fearful and universal judgment seat of our Master and Savior. Thus also said the other martyrs, Do what you will, for we are Christians, and we will not sacrifice to idols. Rusticus the Prefect pronounced sentence saying let those who have refused to sacrifice to the gods and to yield to the command of the emperor be scourged and led away to suffer the punishment of decapitation according to the laws the holy martyrs having glorified God and having gone forth to the accustomed place were beheaded and perfected their testimony in the confession of the savior And some of the faithful, having secretly removed their bodies, laid them in a suitable place, the grace of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, having wrought along with them, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you hear that in the early Yeshua movement? They had heroes. And they viewed deaths that were bloody, that were gory, that were violent, that were horrific. They viewed them as glorious deaths. They said, Elohim was glorified through that death. Yeshua the Messiah, he was testified of, and he was glorified through that death. And uh, you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, Yeshua said, Shimon, you know, when you were a younger guy, you'd put on your own clothes and go wherever you wanted. When you get older, someone else is going to tie you up, and going to take you where you don't want to go, and they're going to stretch out your hands. And that was the Hebrew idiom for being crucified. And uh, John went on to, he has a little note, and he said, Yeshua told Shimon that to indicate by which kind of death he would glorify Elohim. So, like, man, when you have that kind of approach in a movement, you cannot beat that movement. It's so radical. It's so unstoppable. You know, it, it, it's an approach like, we will testify of Yeshua with our lives, and if we get to die, great, that will testify of Him too. We'll glorify Yeshua with our lives, and if we die for the faith, great, that will glorify Elohim also. Wow. Like, it's it, it's hard to think that way, hey? It's hard to think in terms of, Wow, a premature, violent death for Yeshua's cause is glorious. That brings glory to the Creator. But it does. Mm. There are some glimpses that we catch. Those are some stories that we get from the early Yeshua movement that, uh, that are really kind of, the pictures are... Salome, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.